Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. If you want to use one of the blue Bibles in front of you, you can find Psalm 50 on page 524. 524. We are continuing our walk through the Psalms this summer. We've got a couple more before we transition to something else for the fall, but this psalm has been a, a, a blessing to me this week, so I pray that God would use it in your life as well. <clears throat> psalm 50. Hear the word of the Lord. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning, I want to tell you about one of the greatest acts of betrayal that I'm aware of. It's a shocking story, 
and one that I find hard to believe every time I tell it. The story takes place in a surprising setting. It was several years ago in the living room of my wife Emily and I's Minneapolis apartment. Twenty of us or so had crammed into our tiny place for a small group dinner. The night was going great. Lots of laughter, lots of joy, plenty of fellowship. It was a beautiful night. Little could I have realized what was about to happen. As the night went on, I eventually made my way to the dessert table. Now, wanting to not show favoritism to any who had brought dishes, I kindly took one of each of the desserts there. And just as I prepared to bite into this incredibly delicious-looking brownie, one of our friends, Paula, said, Oh, tell me what you think. I made those with beets. I know. It's appalling. It's wrong. And as you can imagine in the moment, I was upset. I was flummoxed and perplexed and vexed and every other word in that family. In fact, I was so upset I could still hear her voice. I made them with beets. 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 But don't worry, I made sure she knew how inappropriate and dishonest it was to have this vegetable pretending to be a brownie. This wasn't a real brownie. I felt betrayed and lied to. After all, there's nothing worse, is there, than something that looks real but is actually fake. As the TV character Ron Swanson has said, there's only one thing I hate more than lying, skim milk, which is really just milk, really just water lying about being milk. Now, I'm being a bit ridiculous about the brownie. I just wanted to get you in here, but I think you get the point. The truth is, we do all hate things that are fake, but people try to pass them off as real. It's why our culture loves words like real, genuine, authentic, right? Those are, those are esteemed words. If you, if you can put that in front of anything, whether it's a product, a relationship, a collector's item, if you can say that it's genuine, it's authentic, it's real, that automatically people are like, oh, wow. But on the other hand, words like fake, phony, artificial, those are insulting. You just feel dirty saying them. We don't want knockoffs. We want the real deal, right? Well, it's no different with Christianity. If you've ever talked to people who don't go to church, particularly those who maybe did go to church and don't anymore, one of the most common reasons people give why they're not interested in the church is because they think the people in it aren't authentic. They think that they just go through the motions of religion, but it's not real to them. It's just a show. Or they say, they say one thing, but then they do another. That, that old label of hypocrite. And when people tell me that they hate empty, fake worship, <laughs> I sympathize with them. I say, me too. But what's even more important than what I think is, so does God. God hates worship that isn't real, that isn't genuine. He hates it when people pretend to follow him 
and then just play at Christianity. And so Psalm 50 is a scathing rebuke of meaningless worship. And to show what a big deal it is, this psalm actually features something that's fairly rare. In Psalm 50, God will speak directly to us. Now, yes, all the psalms are God's word, so I'm not saying that. But typically in the psalms, the word of God comes to us either through a psalmist speaking to the people or the people speaking to God. But this morning in Psalm 50, God himself is going to directly address mankind. And as the psalm unfolds, what we'll see is that what's taking place here is actually a courtroom drama. We're going to see that even in our outline this morning. So go ahead and throw that up. So as the psalm opens, what we're going to see is we're going to see God, the holy judge, enter the courtroom. He's going to assemble the various parties that will also be in the courtroom with him. Then, in the rest of the psalm, God's going to bring two charges against his people. The first charge is that of heartless worship. And the second charge is that of hypocritical living. Now, I do have good news. And that is because, that is that this psalm is not just a rebuke of fake worship. It also shows us the path to renewal of real worship. So my prayer this morning is may God search all of our hearts this morning, see if there be any grievous way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. So would you look first with me back at verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read it again just so it's fresh in our minds. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. All right, so let's walk through this and see what we can find here. As the psalm begins, we meet the one who will be both the prosecutor who brings the charges and the judge who tries the case. And he's introduced to us in verse 1 by three rapid-fire identifiers. He's the mighty one. He's God. And he's the Lord or Yahweh. And this piling up of titles here is meant to help us grasp the gravity of the situation and to realize just who it is we're dealing with. This is not the man upstairs. This is not the big guy. This is not a God to be trifled with. He is the mighty one, God, the Lord. There is none like him. He is majestic in holiness. And this holy God is doing something here. What's he doing? He's summoning the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting. In other words, he's summoning all the earth from the rising on one end to the setting on the other. He's summoning everybody everywhere. And what's he summoning them for? To be witnesses and participants in this court case. 
And summons is a really good translation here because we get that, right? When you get a summons to appear in court, it's not merely an invitation, really, is it? It's not like, thank you, but I'm busy that day. When you get a summons, the authority of the court and of the judge has said, you will be here that day. And that's what's happening here. God summons the whole earth to come to this trial. And as the judge makes his way into the courtroom, you can almost hear the heavenly angels saying, all rise. And as he makes his way in, look how he's described. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. Now this language that's used here, this is language that's often used in what's called a theophany, which is just a fancy word for the times when God appears to man. And the things listed here are all things that are meant to testify to the display of his glory. Listen to me. It says, out of the perfection of beauty, he shines forth. So he's shining. What does that tell me? He's light. His presence is brilliant and blinding light. The kind of light from which nothing is hidden. All sin is uncovered by the radiance of this God shining. Not only that. He is a devouring or consuming fire. The kind of fire that purifies and burns away any impurities in its path. In other words, the presence of this Holy One both uncovers sin and purifies sinners. And as this Holy Judge comes, he says he's not going to be silent. If you drop your eyes down to verse 21, we'll see later that when people have committed the offenses God charges them with, in the past, he has been silent. But no longer. Now he's coming. And he's got something to say. Then we see that he calls all heaven and earth to serve as witnesses in this case. So we've got a prosecutor. We've got a judge. We've got witnesses. So we're left with, well, who's on trial? God's own people are the defendants. Look who he's going to judge at the end of verse 4. It says that he may judge his people. In verse 5, he calls for his faithful ones. That's often translated his saints. He calls for them to be gathered, those who are in covenant with him through sacrifice. we got to keep in mind, these aren't unbelievers out there in the world. These are God's people. Judgment is going to begin at God's house. Then the last part of this first section, we get a guarantee that this trial that's about to take place, it will be just. Why do we know it will be just? Because the heavens declare the righteousness of this judge. Well, who is the judge? God, the holy and righteous one himself, is going to judge this trial. And this holy judge has two charges to bring against his people. As I said, his first charge in verses 7 to 15 is heartless worship. Heartless worship. So drop down to verse 7 with me. This is God the judge speaking to his people. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. 
Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. All right, so let's walk through this. So in verse 7, this holy God commands his people's attention. He says, listen up, my people. I have something against you, and you need to hear this. And to make sure they're paying attention, notice that he reminds them who's speaking. He says, I am God, your God. In other words, they have a double responsibility to listen because he's God, which that's enough, but he's also their God. It's like when a dad says to his child, he says, now listen, I am your father. You need, why does he say that? Like, they know that. The point is that precisely because of this relationship, they should listen all the more closely. That's what God's saying here. Because of my relationship to you, that doesn't get you off the hook. It means you need to listen up. Okay, so what's the problem? Well, first he tells them what the problem, he tells them that the problem is not that they're not doing the right things. He says, no, you're making sacrifices. You're giving burnt offerings. In fact, you're following all the rituals to a T. Yeah, that's going well. They're using the right animals. They're wearing the right clothes when they do it. They've got all the right people involved. They're checking all the religious boxes, and they're crossing off everything on their godly to-do lists. Everything's looking good. Somebody who shows up to one of their services, they're like, yeah, this is a healthy Healthy situation. So what's the problem? The problem is that they're doing all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. They completely misunderstand the sacrifices. They've started to think of the sacrifices that they're offering as if they're somehow doing favors for God. They act as though God needs the animals that they offer and that their sacrifices are are providing something that God is lacking. Like, if they didn't offer their cow, God would then be hungry and helpless. So all their religious activity is really, it's, it's helping God out. I mean, their sacrifices, they're, it's supplying what God needs. And there's also this idea of manipulation, that they're giving God what he wants and needs, so therefore, God will and should give them what they want and need. Now, before we're too hard on these Israelites, if we're honest, can't we see just a little more of ourselves in them than is comfortable? Can't we all fall into seasons where we're, we're doing all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons? We have perfect attendance at church. Every box on your Bible reading plan is checked. We do all the things that one would expect of a good Christian. And for everyone looking in from the outside, everything looks good and respectable. And yeah, 
they're, they're going after it. But underneath the shiny surface, our worship is hollow. It's empty. It looks good, but it's really just us keeping up appearances. Now, we never say it out loud, but can't we start to think somewhere in the deep recesses of our mind or our heart that, you know what, God, God needs what we have to offer. I mean, he's, he's lucky that I go to church. He, he needs me at church. I mean, if I didn't go, there'd be less people. That would look bad. I mean, he needs, you're welcome, God. He needs our serving. He needs our quiet time. He needs the money that we give. It's a good thing God has us to provide all these things that he needs. Not only that, but because we give him what we do, he kind of owes us, right? I mean, it's only fair. We give him our Sundays. We give him the tithes that he and his church so desperately need. We, we jump through his hoops, so he owes us the blessings, right? To both his people in Psalm 50 and to you and me this morning, God is very clear. He says, if that's why you worship the way you do, I don't want it. And I certainly don't need it. His point in verses 10 to 11 is that he already owns everything. Why would he need your cow when he owns the cattle on a thousand hills? And what's your little goat when every beast of the forest belongs to him. Or to bring it up to speed in our context, he might say something like, why would I need your heartless worship when I'm able to raise up worshipers from stones? I mean, if you guys are silent, they'll cry out. And then God, God tells them, he's saying, look, I don't, I don't need your stuff. He's like, even if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the world and everything in it is mine. It's like someone who lives in the grocery store being like, oh, I'm hungry. And so they walk out in the street trying to find somebody like, do you have a candy bar? I'm starving. Can you please help me? It's like, he's like, I've got it all. Why in the world would I go to you? Then God says, besides, I don't even eat bulls. I don't drink the blood of goats. So how could your sacrifices even be helping me? He's like, how do, you, how do you get that in your mind? He's like, you know that I'm not up there just like eating these things. So how did you fall into this trap of thinking, I need this? The point of these verses, friends, is that God is emphatically asserting that he doesn't need us. And that's good news. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our time. He doesn't need any of your religious performance. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. The earth is the Lord's and the inhabitants thereof. He has no needs and he has no lack. So don't for a moment ever think that something you do in your service to God is filling up a hole that he has is making up a deficit. He has everything. And when we lose sight of that, we start to imagine that what we offer him in worship is somehow giving him something he needs. 
And when that happens, our worship becomes empty and formal. Just doing the right things on the outside, but inside void of real love, real trust, and real delight in him. But what God wanted them and us to see here is that the sacrifices he called for weren't meant to supply his need, but to show and remind them that we need him. In fact, he makes that clear when he goes on to tell them the answer to this problem. In verses 14 and 15, after he's rebuked them, now he's going to give them the secret to renewing their worship. What does he say? He calls them to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And to really grasp what he's saying here, we need to understand a little bit about sacrifices. Okay, so, so follow along with me here. In the law, in the, the Old Testament, first five books of Moses, in the law, God called for five types of sacrifices. You can read about these in Leviticus 1 to 7. Okay, it'll spell it out. In your ESV Bible, it'll actually have nice little headers that tell you where it's talking about each of these. So five types of sacrifice. They were burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings, okay? Now, it's not important that you remember all those, but know that each of those played a slightly different role in the people's worship. Now, when it talks about peace offerings, it's important to understand these were not offerings given to make peace with God. These were offerings given to celebrate the fact that the worshiper already had peace with God. Okay? They were not, you didn't secure your peace with God through a peace offering. You celebrated, I'm at peace with God. And the sacrifice of thanksgiving that we're talking about here, that was a specific type of peace offering. Okay? So big category is peace offering. Subcategory, sacrifice of thanksgiving. And here's how it would work. When someone received a blessing from the Lord, it could be anything, or when they had prayed to God and he had answered them, when he, any of these types of things happened, they would take their sacrifice to the sanctuary and they would offer it as a peace offering. And while the animal was on the altar, the worshiper would stand and declare what it was that God had done for them. So, I'm making this up, but maybe they prayed that God would heal their little boy, and he did. So they bring this animal, and while it's on the altar, they stand and say, I cried out to God. None of the doctors could do it, but I prayed, and I asked him, and God healed my little boy. Oh, praise him. So what's important to notice is that when they did this, it was a way to testify and praise God publicly. For his goodness to them. And these sacrifices, they weren't about what the worshipers were doing for God. Not like, oh, i got to go do a sacrifice. They were rejoicing in and thanking God for what he'd already done for them. These offerings were a way of enjoying the fellowship they had with God as his covenant people. They weren't making up for something they'd done wrong. And they weren't scoring points with God. They were simply acts of worship offered by people who were grateful and thankful for God's kindness to them. And that's God's point in calling for these offerings. He doesn't want their animal. And he doesn't want our empty religious activity. 
He wants our hearts of gratitude and trust. That's what he's after. He says, I don't need your animals. But what I want is your heart. And this is further spelled out when he calls them in verse 14 to also pay their vows to the Most High. Now, what are these vows? Like, that's unfamiliar language to us, the way we worship. Well, if you look through the Psalms, at many of the lament types of Psalm, when people are in desperate situations, when they call out to God to help them, they often include a promise to praise him if he rescues them from their plight. So you can picture Jonah as a good example. When he's in there, he's, he, at the end of it, he talks about making, paying these kind of vows and making a sacrifice of thanksgiving. God, if you'll get me out of this, if you will deliver me, oh, I will go and I will praise you. So they're saying, God, if you help me, I vow that I'll praise you with sacrifices of thanksgiving. If you answer my prayer, I'll rejoice and worship you publicly for your saving goodness to me. I will tell everybody, this is what the Lord has done for me. And this wasn't manipulative bargaining. You got to understand that. I think we're tempted to hear, oh, this is a tit for tat. You do this, I'll do that. This was admitting that praise is not something we give to God to meet his needs. Instead, they were acknowledging praise is what God is due because he already met their needs. Their worship would be in response to his saving work. These vows were them showing their faith in this ongoing cycle of prayer, praise, prayer, praise, prayer, praise. In fact, that cycle is spelled out for us in verse 15 by God himself. What does God tell them to do? He says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. Do you hear it? You pray when you're in need. I'll deliver. You praise me. Prayer, deliverance, praise. Prayer, deliverance, praise. And how would they glorify him after his deliverance? By publicly praising him through a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You see how this is all working together? Do you see the key to renewing our worship when it starts to get heartless and hollow? What to do when we just check all the right boxes but for all the wrong reasons? The key is understanding that in worship we come to God as the needy ones. We come not to give but to get. There used to be, I don't, know if it's, I don't hear it as much now, but there used to be this myth, this lie out there that people say things like, you should come to church to give, not to get. No! <laughs> you come desperate. You come broken. You come weary. Because God says, I'm ready to give. And if you say, no, no, God, I got it. I'll give to you. He says, I don't need it. Worship is not about what we do for God because he doesn't need anything. Instead, worship is about what he does for us. We are hungry, he feeds. We are poor, he provides. We are blind, he gives us sight. We're in danger, he delivers. We are dead, he gives life. We are guilty, he pays for our sins. Friends, if your worship feels stagnant this morning and you feel like you're just going through the motions, doing what you're supposed to do, listen to what God calls you to. He calls you to only do two things, just two. Step one, admit that you're the needy one and cry out to him in the day of trouble. That's step one. Not hard. Just admit, God, I need it. I need you. I'm the one in need. You don't need it. I need. 
Stop trying to have it all together. Stop thinking that to be a good Christian means you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's. To be a good Christian, step one is, God, I need you. I'm a mess. Admit you are broken and sinful and desperate for him to save you and keep changing you. And when you do, he says, when you do that, I'll deliver you. I'll show up every time. And then when he does, step two. Glorify him. Rejoice in what he's done and praise him for it. Then you know what you do? Repeat. Step one, step two, repeat. Step one, step two, repeat. That's worship that pleases the Lord. Worship that's fueled by real gratitude and real faith that he will do all that he's promised to do. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came not to be served by us, (laughs) but to serve us. Not to receive from us, but to give to us. He gave his life as the perfect sacrifice to pay for all our sins, including all of our heartless worship. Because in this trial before the holy judge, friends, we are all guilty. We all have heartless streaks in us, don't we? None of us loves God with all of our hearts, All of our hearts are divided. We're all better at following rules than trusting a redeemer. But Jesus offers us both forgiveness and righteousness. So instead of trying to perform better and impress him, we can simply rest in him. So as we sang earlier, are you weary, heavy laden? Come, lay your burdens down. Jesus calls you. Jesus draws you. Rest in him. Are you hopeless? Are you guilty? Caught in shame for all your sin? He pursues you to forgive you. Rest in him. And are you waiting in your sorrows for this broken world to heal? He's coming, soon returning. Rest in him. That's the good news of this first section, friends. But what we've seen so far, that's just one charge, the charge of heartless worship. The judge has one more indictment to bring. Look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So now God's going to turn his focus from heartless worship to hypocritical living. Look how he confronts them in verse 16. This is God himself. And he says, what right do you have to quote my Bible? 
What right do you have to claim to be part of my covenant people? In essence, he's saying, how dare you? Now, why is God so angry? Because these people claim to love God and his word, and yet they hate what his word actually says. They reject it. They're like, oh, not doing that. And they can't stand how it's calling them to live. It says they just throw it behind them and ignore it. It's as though they opened their Bibles and they read something that they didn't like. They're like, who needs this? And they just chuck it over their shoulder. These are professing believers. They're claiming to be part of God's people. They're quoting the Bible with their lips, but their lives don't match up to God's word at all. Now notice something here. In our psalm, God is bringing two charges against his people, right? The first one we looked at corresponded to what's called the first table of the law. The commands and the Ten Commandments focused on God. Now in the second charge, his accusation corresponds to the second table of the law. The commands focused on neighbor. The whole law, remember, can be summed up as love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So God already showed them, hey, you're not doing the first. You're not loving me with all your heart. And now he's charging them with not doing the second, with not loving their neighbor. And to demonstrate this, he points out three specific commandments they're breaking. These weren't necessarily the only ones, but he says, I'll give you some evidence. First, in verse 18, he says, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him. I think the NIV captures it even more starkly. It says, if you see a thief, you join with him. The idea here is that they may not have initiated the, the stealing that was going on, whatever that looked like. They may not have been the instigators, but when they see it, become aware of it, well, they got no problem participating in it. Hey, if I can get something out of this, if there's some free stuff to be had. Rather than renouncing the thief, saying, no, that's wrong. They approved of what he was doing, and they joined in. Probably in a way that they could rationalize. You know, say, like, well, I mean, I didn't, I'm not the one that started this. I'm just, if I benefit, I don't know. It's not a big deal. That's the first way. Second, still in verse 18, God says, you keep company with adulterers. Again, they're not necessarily committing adultery themselves. But they are associating with those who do. They spend their time with them. They show that they're comfortable with their sin. It's like, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. It doesn't bother me. Like, I, I know you're, you're sleeping with somebody who's not your wife, but, <laughs> I mean, who doesn't, right? It's, it's fine. It's not a big deal. And then third, in verse 19, they use their mouths to lie and tear others down. They give their mouths free reign for evil. They just say whatever they want. No filters, no restraint. And it doesn't even have to be true. Did you see that? Their tongue frames deceit. That word frame here is actually the word weave. The picture is that in their words, they're weaving a web of lies and partial truths. And what's even worse is that all this destructive speech, this web of lies and half-truths, is directed against their own brothers. Instead of loving their brothers, they're tearing them down and trying to destroy them with their words. Remember, the ones doing this are all those who claim to be God's people. These are not those people out there that we're so quick to throw stones at. In our day, these would be church-going, Bible-quoting, professing Christians. And yet, despite what they said, their lives were completely out of sync with God's word. 
They were, in fact, hypocrites. They were pretending to be one thing, but they were really another. Their worship wasn't genuine. It was just a mask they put on to cover up their real selves. And in verse 21, God the holy judge says, These things you've done, and I have been silent. And because he'd been silent, they've convinced themselves that God is just like us. I mean, sin doesn't bother us, and since God hasn't done anything, it must not bother him either. I mean, we don't care, he don't care. It's all good. Sin must not be a big deal. He's easy going about it just like us. We let it slide, he'll let it slide. They've convinced themselves that God isn't angry about their sin since he hasn't confronted them in this way yet. But in thinking that way, they make a grave mistake because God is not like us. He is holy. Habakkuk 1 says, He is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. But because he hadn't confronted them, the people mistake God's patience for his permission. But he will remain silent no longer. Now he rebukes them and he lays the charge before them. And in the same way, he lays the charge before all of us because we're all hypocrites to some degree. Even as followers of Jesus, we claim that the Bible is our authority. And yet we're often better at quoting it than we are at obeying it. We can say the right things with our lips, but then fail to show them with our lives. And if you're here and that cuts close to home, you're in good company. Because that's all of us. But guess what? The gospel is good news for hypocrites like us. Because Jesus not only preached righteousness, he practiced righteousness. He perfectly loved God and loved his neighbor. And by faith in him, his perfect record of genuine worship is counted as ours now. Not only that, when he went to the cross, Jesus paid for all our hypocrisy. He died for every time that you and I are hearers of the word, but not doers. He paid the price for every time that we know what is right and do not do it. He purchased our forgiveness for all the times and ways the conduct of our lives does not match up with the confession of our faith. So what would God say to hypocrites like us, like you and me, so that our worship might be renewed? Because I don't want to stay there. I hate when I see that in me. So God, what can I do? What would God say? The same thing he said to heartless worshipers. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. In other words, the remedy to heartless, formal worship and the remedy to hypocritical, fake worship is the same. Real, genuine praise of God because of how he's heard our prayers of need and delivered us. Friends, the way to short circuit both hypocrisy and heartlessness is to admit our desperate need for God, trust him to provide the help we need, and then thank and praise him for his goodness to us when he shows up yet again. 
That's God's ordained means. He says, you're struggling in your worship. You find it's empty and hollow. I know it'll fix you. You're a faker and a hypocrite and you, you say one thing and do another. I got a solution for you. Admit your neediness. Don't get it together. Admit that it's falling apart. And then come to me. Come to me, rest in me. Say, God, I need you. And when I come, rejoice and praise me and thank me and say, you did it again, God. So Chapelwood, hear God's call to renew your worship this morning. You don't need to do more. You don't need to perform better. Just call upon him in your trouble. Remember that he has delivered you and he will deliver you. And let's offer to him a sacrifice of thanksgiving, declaring all that Jesus has done for us and thanking him for his mercy and kindness to us. Because our God is real. He really hears. He really helps. He really saves. So let's really worship him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you love us enough to confront us like Psalm 50 does. That you don't just let us keep going astray in our messed up worship. But instead, you desire better things for us. And you don't simply desire them, you bring them about. You use your word to challenge us, to confront us, to convict us and help us realize the ways that maybe we've just been going through the motions. Maybe we have been so busy and we've done all the right things, but when we check our hearts, we realize we've forgotten our first love. God, if that's true, we repent this morning and we pray, would you make our worship real? Would you help it to be heartfelt instead of heartless? Make it genuine. Make it arise from a heart of gratitude that sees and savors all that you've done for us and can't help but thank you and praise you for it. And God, in all the ways that we are hypocritical, in the ways that we say one thing and do another, would you forgive us for that and would you help bring our hearts and lives into better alignment? Would how we live match more closely what we believe? God, we are powerless to do it on our own. We admit our need, our dependence, and our absolute reliance upon you. So would you come and renew our worship this morning? And God, because you've already rescued us and because all of this was framed in the context of our God coming to us, because you've already made us your people and because you love us enough to save us from these sins, help us to thank you this morning. God, we love you and we praise you for your kindness to us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.